Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Fabulous Pelton Cast. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carzino. And we are here to talk about the year in music 2021, one of our favorite annual podcasts. I mean, there's really only a couple annual podcasts, but definitely one of our two favorites of those. Absolutely. Of our two favorites. (laughs) And a chance for you to be on your home turf, as you said earlier this week. For once, for the first time. (laughs) Which is funny that I play every week on the road turf, but still run laps around you. It's kind of wild. Oh, wow. Many people are not sane. (laughs) So we thought to break down this year in music to take a slight deviation from our usual format and actually hearken more to our year in sports, which will be coming next week on the pod, uh, to look at a few key moments from the year and then get into our annual top tens. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think before then, before we get into it, you know, it was definitely, uh, this is an interesting podcast. Last year, I think it was possibly the most interesting year in music podcast that we ever did. Uh, just knowing what a strange year it was for music as the world descended into uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. This was our second year of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and music definitely, I would not describe as normal for most of the year, but we did see a certain return to normalcy and we'll talk a little bit more about this as we get into the the specific topics. Um, but it feels like some of the doom and gloom perspectives that existed, I mean, this is probably true among sports as well. Um, there were some predictions that were made early on in the pandemic, and maybe as the pandemic was dra- dragging on, that everything we knew and believed about this thing, whether it was sports, whether it was music, whatever, TVs, film, anything, our way of life, there were some predictions that were made that they were going to be changed forever. And I think what we've learned is that some institutions in this country are very resilient and those institutions have infrastructures in place uh, and they're there for a reason and people bounce back. And I think this was a huge year for that with regards to music. Uh, You know, we still had major stars performing in huge places like The Weeknd playing halftime of the Super Bowl in front of fans, no less. Uh, And we had the touring industry, which again, we'll talk about a little bit more later on, uh, come back. I don't want to say full throttle, but uh, mirroring a similar version of what it was prior. Uh, So this was a year of bounce backs, definitely for the music industry after a real doom and gloom year and a return to normalcy that I think was definitely welcome and needed. And some pieces of the pandemic that, that influenced how we listen to music and the types of music that I think we are listening to. Uh, so it was, it was definitely an interesting one. And not just institutions. I think that there's still a demand for people to go out and be social together and go to live events that in fact, there was probably a lot of pent up demand in many, uh, in many situations to go see live music, because that's one of those things that despite the success of, you know, the versus series, which is going to, I think, continue, you know, well after the return of live music, et cetera, that people still wanted that experience of being able to be in a venue with a group of other people hearing musicians perform live. It's how music was initially received, right? The idea of recorded music is a relatively new thing, all things considered. Um, so yeah, I mean, getting back to some roots to a certain extent, you mentioned verses. It's kind of interesting because it does feel like, and not to get into talking about 
live touring, but like, it feels like that's one of the few things that did pop up during the pandemic that's almost remained the same, where like the impact of it is almost precisely the same now as it was even when everybody was trapped inside. Right, which is not to say, by the way, that everyone won't be trapped again inside, again inside, again soon. Sure. But yeah, I, I originally, when we were going over the, a longer list of items, I was like, wait, should verses be on here? But then it was like, well, no, that actually that started in 2020. It's a 2020 thing, not a 2021 thing. Well, it's also just a testament to how well it was done and to how compelling the the concept is, right? Because it's a compelling enough concept that it has exceeded the pandemic. It's like carried on past the pandemic. It wasn't something where we were caught in it or needed that. I mean, I think about another thing, which probably will not come up any other place, but like the, the Bo Burnham inside, uh, I guess I'll call it a comedy special, but it was something that, you know, it was interesting being viewed through the prism of the pandemic, but ultimately when most people saw it, we were seeing it as we were sort of coming out of the hard parts of lockdown, right? And I think that actually made it perhaps even slightly more interesting that we were able to look back on this time period. But ultimately the thing that stood out from that was there's the Netflix special, right? But people I think care more about the music itself. It's a comedy album and something that exists on Spotify and on TikTok more so than it does the comedy special. And I think that's partially because of, again, how strong the music actually is. And I think the concept and the idea has to exceed more than just something that you're doing in your house. Um, and, you know, you look at some things that we did or like Clubhouse or something like that early on in the pandemic. Maybe the idea wasn't good enough. And that was a pandemic idea. But there were other things that lasted beyond that. So you're saying that none of those Bo Burnham songs will be in your top 10 of 2021? Are they going to be in your top 10? <laughs> they will not. Oh, have you listened <laughs> to them? No, not really. Oh, wow. There's some bangers in there. Should we get into these moments? Absolutely. All right. So the first one you had was the driver's license moment and uh, Olivia Rodrigo's appearance on the scene as a musician, you know, as a solo musician after uh, her original stardom in High School Musical, the series. So driver's license was released on January 8th, shortly into 2021. But I feel like the actual, like, obviously it was a big deal right away in terms of streaming, but the moment was when SNL did the sketch about it, right? The SNL sketch on driver's license? Yes. I feel like the moment hit when the record came out. Like maybe the driver's license moment hit then, but the Olivia Rodrigo moment happened in, I want to say June or sometime like that. Sour the, came out May 21st. May 21st. And and I feel like that's when everything kind of, I think she might've performed on SNL around that time. Right. Uh, really just a, a fascinating artist, Olivia Rodrigo. And, and the arc of how her career has moved so quickly, I think she has probably had the fastest rise of any young pop star, I want to say, since. I, it's really tough looking back. How, I mean, we're talking like Britney Spears territory, just how quickly it happened. Uh, for Olivia Rodrigo with the the first single in Driver's License, but then being able to top that, right? Driver's License is her most streamed song, but it's also had a month's advantage on other tracks. And I think Good For You is like right there. It's right in the mix. And the chances of her being able to take a song that ultimately was a TikTok song when it came out. And I think that's how most people learned who Olivia Rodrigo was. 
they didn't really know much about her background. They didn't know about the major label behind her necessarily. It felt like a natural thing. I mean, Olivia Rodrigo is a masterclass in marketing a brand new artist, right? This is the absolute best case scenario for how marketing could have gone and a rollout in 2021. Like, honestly, it is extraordinarily impressive the Olivia Rodrigo story that happened through this year. And I think part of what, why she is, why is important enough for it to be a moment is it wasn't just driver's license. There's a lot of one hit wonders on TikTok. The fact that she was able to follow it up and like, that's not her most impactful song, but also that, you know, you look at a lot of her like image and the visuals. There was a lot of chatter when the record came out that maybe they were taken from different parts of the indie world. Uh, the music, obviously, they ended up paying some songwriting credit or giving some songwriting credit to Paramore. And it, none of it mattered. Like, that's the incredible thing about it is she was able to take all of these different pieces throughout pop music and the team that was around her, of course, were able to take all of these different pieces from throughout pop music, turn it into an extraordinarily diverse record and a really a truly 2021 record. And the criticisms that came in, although they were there, none of them mattered at all. The music stood above all of these things and the personality of Olivia Rodrigo stood above all of these things. And I, I'm just shocked. It really is like, we'll talk about TikTok in a second. To me, this is the most TikTok story though, in that TikTok is all about imitation and it's about recreation and it's about repetition, right? And the thing that we, that we learned about Olivia Rodrigo was we heard these songs over and over and over and over again. They looked like something familiar. They felt like something familiar and they became massive. That's exactly what I was going to say is that sort of what record companies discovered at, at some point, which is that, people want a song that is new, but sounds familiar, right? Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I don't think that's a, a new perspective that, that record companies have figured out. They just no. did an extraordinarily good job at this one particular project. And I think the music ultimately is good music. That, right. That's the thing is if it wasn't, if it felt like, if it felt too much like the the inspirations, I'm not sure if it would be as compelling, but the thing is, like great pop songs. I mean, you look at it in hip hop all the time, right? We were listening to the song. Um, uh, oh my God, who does that song? Right Round that <laughs> Flo Rida sampled. Um, God, I can't remember the group, the 80s group who did it. But it's just like, that's the thing we learned in hip hop was you take an 80s sample or whatever, a 90s sample, translate it, put something new to it. People are going to fucking love it, right? Because there's already that built-in familiarity. And I think that's really like... Uh, there's a built-in familiarity with this music sometimes because you're having to pay songwriting for it. But ultimately in the end, it was a wise decision whether they were or not. Uh, that was dead or alive. Dead or alive. But yeah, I mean, the vocals also had to match it and her ability to capture the emotions that she did on the album. And that's what, you know, allowed the comparisons to other great pop stars that came before her and, and allowed Olivia Rodrigo to live in that same lane. I, I think they managed to hit all the right trends at the exact right time. They hit the image at the right time. They hit the sounds at the right time. I mean, a lot of stuff that we'll be talking about after this, but it, it was, it was an impressively meteoric rise for Olivia Rodrigo. Absolutely.
I still think the SNL sketch was a bigger deal than you did. I mean, I'm sure I'd heard the song before then, but had I really like understood the moment until then, maybe not. All right, so the second on your list, you've alluded to this already and, and said that Olivia Rodrigo is maybe the artist who most exemplifies this, but the rise of TikTok and the importance of TikTok to the music industry, not something new, but something that's only continuing to gain steam in 2021. I, I think that's it is the continuation, right? Which there was a second where there were a lot of very smart people who predicted that TikTok would fade away at this point. And, you know, I was talking with the person who uh, runs the TikTok department of a fairly significant record label in early November and asked them. That's a specific uh, department, the TikTok department. It's not yes, a social media yeah. department. It's the TikTok department. There are multiple people. I mean, other social media does not matter. Ultimately, TikTok is the only social media that matters, uh, if you want to consider it social media. And the, I, so I asked, you know, as people have started going to live shows, they're getting out more, we're returning to normalcy in the world. I was like, does TikTok matter less? Do you feel like the impact is lower of it? And so I asked that question. She's like, of TikTok? No. <laughs> Like, <laughs> just laughed okay. at you for even asking the question I, it was like it was one of those things where I, I think I personally wasn't on TikTok so I assume nobody else was or whatever and maybe the conversations that are happening around it did they dimmed because it's just not a new exciting story anymore or whatever there wasn't the next Olivia Rodrigo but as it is it is just the preferred social media platform of basically every young person in the entire country and you know the Get it, returning to normalcy did not impact the user base, it seems like, at all of TikTok, and especially the impact that it has on pop music, which basically, if you're trying to break a young pop artist, like what happened with Olivia Rodrigo is that's kind of your only goal. You know, most of the marketing budget that you have is going to be spent there because ultimately, if a song takes off there, it takes off everywhere. But like, while TikTok is functions to serve young pop stars, I think the thing that's even more fascinating about it is just how it follows none of the rules that we're used to of social media prior, right? Like the idea that you can basically repeat the exact same thing over and over and over again. One person can repeat the exact same thing over and over and over again. And I'm sure you have some criticisms about people like this on Twitter, but it would be like if you literally tweeted the same thing every single day verbatim, you just repost it or whatever. And it continued to be successful. Often it would be more successful if you were just like, I can't wait till the Twitter algorithm picks up this one tweet that I have and then makes me a successful person. And it's kind of incredible, like how little it takes ultimately, like the difference between prior to TikTok, the ability to reach quote unquote, like virality was pretty difficult for the average person, right? Yeah, you, you need a megaphone to do it. Now it, it could be basically anybody. And the thing about it is, you know, you see like, you see like people who have a viral tweet, right? And sometimes you'll look at their accounts and be like, they still have whatever, 1100 followers or something like that. If this were an artist that had a viral song, that song would be one of the most important songs in the entire world, pretty much instantly after that. And how things can continue to move within the platform. Again, it's like on Twitter, 
there's like, you get a, a viral tweet. It's like a two day process at most, right? With a song on TikTok that has taken off and people are recreating videos for, I'm, this is not news to anybody, I don't think, but like that continues. And the fact we talked about this last year that it moves to Spotify is, it is an absurd thing to think about. And I think it's something that prior to TikTok, nobody ever considered, but the piece that it also doesn't take into account is newness is not really a factor here. You know, like the idea of in a Spotify world, new is the most important thing on earth, right? You have one window basically to be like, this is the week that we get into playlists. And for TikTok, songs can go viral that are decades old and not by significant artists, right? There, well, sometimes, a, sometimes they are by significant artists. Sometimes they are and sometimes they aren't, right? Like the, the Fleetwood Mac on the yeah, one that end. Was, that was the one I was thinking of. But like, there's that on one end, but there's so many other artists whose career, their lives transformed where they were just a kind of like run in the mill indie rock artists or whatever. And all of a sudden they're pop stars, right? They're having major labels reach out to them. They're having conversations with Interscope because a song from six years ago took off on TikTok. Like that is something that in any other time, I feel like in music has not been possible. There's no, there's no avenue in Instagram or in MySpace or in Facebook or whatever to blow something up that is so dated. I mean, Mountain Goats, right? Of all bands, the song No Children had, are you aware of this? I don't know. I, I don't know if I was. Completely blew up on TikTok, right? We're talking about a song from the early 2000s or so, like basically like of a band that has a lot of bleak songs, like one of their bleakest songs now has 31 million plays on Spotify because of TikTok. Like the Mountain Goats moment happened on TikTok. The Wunderbar moment happened on TikTok. It's happening right now as we speak, right? Like these are things that this should not happen, but it kind of, it leveled that playing field. Like ultimately, it, it's kind of the most punk thing that could happen, right? When you talk about leveling the playing field, is there's some people out there who are spending so much money to try to blow up on TikTok. And sometimes they're extraordinarily successful and sometimes they're not, right? If every single person, if all you need to do is spend money to be successful on TikTok, then everybody would just spend money and be successful on TikTok. But it's not that simple. It's, it's still a combination of basically money plus the song plus luck, right? And that's how you get Olivia Rodrigo or whatever. That's how you get Doja Cat, Megan Thee Stallion. But there's this other world were these songs from artists who I feel like never in a million years were mountain goats sitting around being like, I sure hope no children goes viral on TikTok. I mean, really this year seemed like a better fit for the past two years. There's so. no, there is no, there is no logic that can be taken from it though. That's the other piece. It's just, it is all randomness to a certain extent. I mean, the other thing I want to say about your, your point about TikTok not losing relevance as we return to a greater degree of normalcy over the summer, a quarter of their user base apparently is under the age of 20. There isn't the same sense of what normal is for that group as there is for those of us who are twice that age and have lived a lot more summers where we were out going to concerts. Or probably, I, I don't know, maybe, the, maybe if you're that young, your life wasn't that abnormal for a while. But, but that's the other piece. Is, I was talking about this with, uh, Mrs. Fantasy Genius yesterday is like uh, other platforms like Facebook and Instagram are all about what you're doing, right? To a certain extent, like 
Facebook is a little bit more about ideas as the platforms work. Like Instagram is like, I did this. I'm documenting it. What you're eating. Yeah. What you're eating. Facebook is all about spreading COVID disinformation. Um, Twitter is like a news and joke source, right? Like that's how you primarily engage with it. TikTok is kind of everything, but ultimately like the ones that you think of the most are kind of people alone, you know? And, but you could be in groups and be dancing in groups, but there's so many like artists who it's just them sitting there or them talking into a camera. It is so much a solo platform that it worked really well during the pandemic, but even as you're out with people, you're always alone ultimately in the end. Wow, that's a bar. Uh, the other thing I'm taking from this is that Damon needs to start putting the Nate and Danny memes on TikTok. Every day. That would, that would be perfect. Uh-huh. Yeah. Every single day until Nate and Danny memes blow up. Anything else on TikTok? I, I think that's it. It, it sort of inter, interweaves with all of these other topics. Because again, is the, you know, I was having a conversation with the publisher uh, at some point earlier on in the year, and they were basically just like, uh, they were saying, they were talking about how important TikTok is to them as like a major label publisher. And they were talking about how like eight of the 10 songs, uh, of the 10 like biggest songs in the world were because of TikTok. You know, like the means to get there uh that's that's it like there's not a lot of other avenues to blow up and so i guess that's that's maybe the like non-punk way to look at it is you need to have this there are other artists like adele is not a tiktok artist right taylor swift while very successful on tiktok is not like a tiktok artist necessarily but i think there were other artists who because they didn't have songs that blew up on tiktok you know obviously their teams tried but because something didn't take i think they had worse record years than they were anticipating. Okay, so the third topic was getting specifically into what we talked about at the top, which is the return of live music over the summer and the crush of tours that that meant for you in the uh, in the fall in particular. And I, I truly wanted to talk about this because it's meant that I've had a very bad fantasy football season. No. <laughs> This is for posterity. Decades later, when people are revisiting the podcast year interview, they're going to want to know, why did this guy keep calling himself fantasy genius, even though none of his teams made the playoffs? It's really bad. It's been actually quite bleak. Uh, I, there's, there's someone on this podcast whose fantasy teams are going to make the playoffs this year. Yeah, de- definitely returned. Uh, you know, you can sort of look at that time period a couple of weeks after uh, the entire country, 12 years old and older, was able to be vaccinated. And it was kind of like, that was sort of go time for the live music industry. And, um, you know, I think one of the most interesting pieces to me, I mentioned this at the top, was ultimately just how similar touring looked after post-COVID. Um, you know, there were things, a few things that were slightly shaken up. Agency world looked a little bit different than it did prior because um, there were places that were solely relying on money from touring. Uh, but ultimately the names and the faces looked awfully similar, I guess, for better or worse post COVID. And I think, you know, during the height of the pandemic, again, there was a lot of doom and gloom. I think there were some people with some uh, bad faith goals who had ideas about how things would look differently. There were some people with fine faith goals with how things would look differently. I remember there was sort of like 
there was like an industry conference or whatever, where it was like the head of CA music and the head of Live Nation were talking about what deals would look like post COVID or whatever. And it's just like, that's not the way that this works. You don't, you know, this is a, a large, vast, diverse touring scene. And these two large parties, while they are important and significant, don't get to make up the rules here. And ultimately, I think what they both found was it's going to look exactly fucking the same. You know, the the offers and the deals and the infrastructure, it doesn't look particularly different than it did pre-COVID. Um, and the venues, again, there was talk about 90% of the venues in the country closing. And ultimately, there were a handful of very important ones that did close, but there was not this cascade of venues that closed during the pandemic for the most part touring looks basically the same now as it did when I was in touring way back four years ago or whatever. Uh, so things, things ended up looking relatively normal for artists and for fans, all things considered. Now, the one piece that has become quite a bit more complicated about it is, uh, I guess, two pieces. You know, a lot of the weight of if something goes wrong is ultimately on the artists. And I think that to me is, you know, I have a huge fear about somebody being stranded somewhere, right? Like an artist ends up with a COVID case in their Cleveland, Ohio, or whatever. And they're like, how do I get out of here? And every everything about that touring is already very expensive. It became more expensive. The price of gas is higher than it has ever been right now. Uh, the idea, you know, in the past when maybe you would have been able to stay with friends in occasional places, uh, with friends, well-wishers, whatever, like that idea is out the window, basically. It could be done, but ultimately, safety-wise, you pretty much have to be staying in hotels for the most part to try to avoid contact with too many other people. And if there is an issue that happens, the financial weight of both losing those shows that you'd have to cancel from the guarantees, from the merch money, et cetera, that's on the artists. And if you end up stranded somewhere and need to stay in a hotel for 10 days or whatever, it's a monumental expense for artists. So I think for the most part, things looked very similar. People were talking about you know, trying to make sure that venues were okay. And I think that's an important piece, but ultimately the artists are the ones that are taking on a much bigger risk and, and touring is not as fun as it used to be. You know, the idea that you would go to a show and might have to spend the entire time in the green room, go play and then go back to the green room. Like that's a thing that has happened this year. And some of it's become a lot more like a profession to a certain extent, the, the live touring industry, which, you know, is not necessarily a terrible thing, but like, the other aspects that you get from touring are not quite as fun anymore as they used to be. So I think the main thing is, you know, for people to continue to support the artist directly. Like if you are going to a show, continuing to buy tickets. Um, and if it gets canceled, ultimately like that money will be refunded and buying merch directly from the artists. Like that is, you know, the easiest way for them to keep a large portion of those profits. But otherwise, you know, it's been pretty interesting figuring out some of those protocols and how it looks. Um, but for the most part, I was impressed with how tours went on. Uh, worked on a handful of tours this fall, one of which uh, was derailed for a chunk of time for some artists because of COVID cases. Another one had no issues at all. 
and I was pretty impressed that that was the case and you know how careful those artists were it was like a month and a half of tour and there was not even really a word spoken about it there was not a concern a scare throughout that tour um, so that was amazing to see we're definitely entering into a time period now where I've seen probably the most shows get canceled there was kind of the height of delta august and it felt like there were a lot of shows being canceled and i think it took a second for venues and artists and fans to figure out exactly how they were going to have concerts and instituting vax mandates and in instituting mask mandates in the venues it was something that initially i think there were a lot of folks who didn't weren't sure if that was going to be necessary let's say, I'm not going to say cutting corners, but they didn't, they weren't sure if that was going to be necessary. And it became very clear very quickly that it was. So getting to and those it, places. And it was hoped that just, you know, in many places like Seattle, if you want to go out to dinner, there's a vax mandate, a mask mandate, all sorts of things. It's not just live music. It became uh, an accepted part of our daylight lives. It, it took the city of Seattle longer than it took live music though. You know, there was a time period over the summer where it was on the artists. And I thought that was a, a particularly unsettling time period where it was like the artists had to institute these mandates. And we knew what was going to come eventually was this was going to be on the venues because the venues are in your city, right? Japanese breakfast doesn't live in every single city in the country. Like they're just trying to protect themselves in the places that they're going. It shouldn't and the, be and the people the going artists. to those shows. And, and some of the bad faith arguments that were going to come out of that shouldn't be directed towards the artists who are just trying to protect themselves. They shouldn't be directed at anybody, but ultimately it's an on the ground issue for that city, right? Yes. Like if, if somebody goes to a venue and spreads COVID, it's going to be primarily to the crowd who are living in that city. This is an issue for those specific cities more than it is for a national touring artist. Uh, but I think to ensure the safety of all, it was something that had to happen, had to happen quickly. And fortunately it did, you know, venues for most parts of the country instituted those policies and instituted mass mandates and touring became from my perspective, at least became a lot safer after that happened. Do you have a sense of what this conversation is going? I mean, obviously none of us do, epidemiologists don't have a sense, but what's the level of concern at this point over what the beginning of 22 is going to look like with Omicron? I think Omicron is hitting at a very fortunate time period. I was thinking about this with school also, where it's like, damn. Like the dress or whatever, but it does feel like it's nice to have a two week head start on it. Uh, and touring is not like a huge thing that happens in early January or whatever. And I think my anticipation is that maybe you disagree with me, but by February or so, this Omicron wave is going to have died out. You know, the Delta wave was really huge at the very beginning, and then it leveled off, and people were able to do it safely. Um, I think we're in that, like, first, first little bit, and it's feeling scary for a second, and we'll have two weeks where there's not going to be a lot of touring, and then by the time we reach mid-January, it's going to be, we're going to have a really good grasp of what it looks like. I think you're a little more optimistic than I am. But you know, ultimately festivals, some festivals came back, some festivals didn't. Um, you know, there was, there was a bit of a, like the no-show rate for concerts definitely went up in this fall as opposed to pre-pandemic, which I don't think is unsurprising. But like, I mean, I was at a number of sold out shows and it felt normal. And I think that was, it was a great feeling to be there and to not feel scared to be there also. 
you know, like knowing that those mandates were in place and being able to look around, it was like my degree of comfort and felt like those around me, the degree of comfort was super high, which was awesome to feel. Uh, you know, we have Coachella's going to return in the spring. Most festivals are kind of returning to their normal schedules this year and happening. And it's like the, again, it was like one of those pieces where there was a little bit of fear, doom and gloom, where it's like every single band on earth is going to tour at the exact same time or whatever. And these things always find a way to figure themselves out. So there was never a time period where it's like in the fall, every band on earth toured or in the spring, every band on earth tour, no venue can be had, you know, Booking tours looks ultimately now basically the same as it did pre-pandemic. And I think that this process is, you know, touring for artists. It's a process that works. And I saw some people talking about like as live music was coming back, I saw a person be like, so we're just going to go back to the same thing we did beforehand post COVID as we were, as we were, you know, basically being like, we had this opportunity to reassess how this looks and we're just going to go forward with it being the same. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> That's it's worked this way for decades. I, I just don't have another solution. I can tell you that live stream shows are not it. You know, it's like the there's really no there's nothing that can replace the experience of live music. Fucking holograms ain't it. Tried that, didn't work, right? Holograms aren't it, live stream shows aren't it. Maybe versus is, but otherwise the experience of a band going town to town and playing in front of a live audience is it's done in basically the most efficient way possible in a very, very large country. Uh, and it's been fine tuned as much as it can be fine tuned and tilted in the artist's favor with a good experience for the audience. And I just, I don't know what the fix is. I don't know what the answer is. If you're looking for some sort of better scenario to me, this is, this is it. Okay. Let's turn to our next moment, which uh, Olivia Rodrigo factors into a little bit as well with uh good for you but uh the rise the return of pop punk in the summer of 2021 i'm curious what your perspective is about this how how much of this you saw as somebody because for me like the rise of pop punk has been happening slowly for a long time paying attention to it but for you as a person who's not paying that close of attention i'm curious how you perceive this well there were a lot of stories about it this summer, some of which mentioned one of your bands. So I saw, I saw those uh, a lot more than I had before. But I, it was also noticeable. I mean, I, I, you know, I flipped through a handful of stations when I'm listening to the radio in my car, but the end is pretty prominent among those. And I feel like it made a huge shift from being more indie rockish to being much more pop punkish over the course of the summer. And some of that was older music, you know, going into the archives, but it was also in particular, you know, Willow. Uh, and like I said, good for you being played on the end, you know, Olivia Rodrigo going from pop radio to, to alternative. I mean, that was, it was an interesting transition that was definitely noticeable to me as a listener. It's, it's kind of interesting. Cause again, that, you know, that, it's been happening for a while, right? Like I'll give Olivia Rodrigo credit and the team credit, but like, this is a story that's been going on for a couple of years at this point. Uh, I would say starting in like, you know, spring 2020 or so, the chatter around pop punk and guitar music becoming more prominent. Uh, you know, there's that sort of like 20 year nostalgia cycle, right? Yep. And the early 2000s was, 
let's say like the second heyday of pop punk, right? You had your like early nineties heyday of pop punk, mid nineties, right? Like the green day era. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I suppose so. I mean, that was like the first mainstream rise of the genre. Yeah. You know? I just was early nineties seemed too early to me. Mid nineties. I will buy Dookie's like 93. I think it's 94, isn't it? 94. Okay. The mid nineties rise parsing one year. Well, <laughs> that's the mid nineties. I don't know what to tell you, chief. And then you have, so you, then you have the like early two thousands period of pop punk, right? Fallout boy, panic at the disco, my chemical romance, right? These bands who are all huge. I'm upset that I didn't, ex- I experienced this. I was the exact right age for it, but I was fucking indie at the time. You know, it's like the idea of listening. I had never heard so many of these songs. I remember like watching MTV and seeing a Fallout Boy song, just being like, "What the fuck is this?" Right? And so, like, the idea of being indie in the early two thousands meant that I was so specifically prejudiced against pop punk, and it was like I'm, I lost. I missed out. <laughs> like I. I am a walking, talking example of why you should not close yourself off to any particular type of music or media or whatever, because now you could be a 36 year old adult and fucking listening to pop punk from the early 2000s and enjoying the shit out of it. Right. Don't be me is what I'm saying. But I I think ultimately like TikTok had something to do with it. I think that the time period, it was just, it was time for guitar driven music to be important in popular music. And I think the thing for me as I learned more about it was like it was a a rise of pop punk and punk and rock music or whatever. Like, but these genres didn't go away, you know? (laughs) Ultimately, again, like vis-a-vis indie, artists who felt extraordinarily successful in indie scenes still were smaller than a lot of pop punk bands that didn't feel like they had an impact in the major music world. It's just like, there is pop punk is eternal, right? Like these bands will exist forever. As long as there are young people, there is successful pop punk music, whether, whether it has an impact and like mainstream culture or not, these audiences are more significant than indie music for the most part. Like the fan bases, I remember working at the Vera project, and there'd be so many bands who would come through the Vera project. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, Joyce Manor, what the hell is that? Um, I'm like, Joyce Manor, real friends, people like this. And every single one of those shows outsold every single Pitchfork type show that was happening. And at no point did I think to myself, as we were selling tickets to these shows, they were doing great. Maybe I should consider trying to work in this music. <laughs> did not cross my mind. Well, you got there eventually. But like, the i think it it really took like the right bands to sort of like bridge those two gaps you know for to to be able to be like this is okay um and to make me pay attention to pop punk music but it was there the entire time it just wasn't it wasn't felt as much and it got nudged up but it's not like it's not like fucking sea shanties or something going from 0 to 100 <laughs> in one week Right. Like this was something that was very popular, becoming extraordinarily popular. But I think the other thing that happened that's important is a diversification in who's doing the pop punk. It's not just, you know, a bunch of 
white suburban teenagers and almost exclusively male too. Although uh, certainly we, we need to mention, you know, Gwen Stefani at some point here. Yeah. And I think that's, that's been the most exciting piece of it is how pop punk is changing. And again, it's kids who were grew up listening to those bands, right. When they were young, those were the bands that they paid attention to and saying like, the world is now open to hearing other voices in this scene. I mean, it's happened throughout music these last couple of years. You know, we talked last year about, I think the number one song, my number one song of the year was Bartice, right? And saying like, there's there's an openness now to different perspectives in indie rock that ultimately I don't know if there was in the early 2000s and the mid 2000s. I mean, we I want to talk about Willow a little bit because in the context of that conversation about how Olivia Rodrigo was positioned, I think it's kind of fascinating. Like I've, I've looked at the Spotify bio. Nowhere on there does it mention either of her extremely famous parents. And it it feels to some extent like they, they, they reference Jada Pinkett Smith in terms of like her following her mother's band as a child, which I, I had actually forgotten about that that stage of, of Jada's career. Uh, it, it does feel a little bit like when, you know, beer companies make up uh, when like the Anheuser-Busch makes up a smaller, you know, beer brand to try to seem more indie. But on the other hand, I feel like that may be totally unfair because if it was, you know, this is the the child of Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith, then you would just be talking about nepotism. So there may be no way to win when you're in that situation. Most importantly, the tracks are good though. Like I right. think that that's the main thing, right? Like there are artists who are successful because of who their parents are. Yes. Right. But like the, you know, the track that the transparent soul track that yeah. blew up oh, yeah. on TikTok earlier this year is it's just a fucking tight song. It doesn't matter. Will Smith doesn't matter to it. Jada Pinkett Smith doesn't matter to it. What matters is it's a good ass song. So like, you know, you can parse whether, you know, how much you want to judge nepotism, but if you're trying to talk about nepotism in the music industry, like you're not going to listen to anybody. So <laughs> or you're not going to watch any sports. Or, or pri privilege also, I suppose, right? Like if you're that concerned with those things, ultimately it's just the songs have to work. And for Willow, they worked. Like the platform was there in part because of Will and Jada Pinkett Smith, but like ultimately Willow deserves the credit for that. You know what I mean? And like still made great music and brought like a fresh perspective to pop punk. And I think again, recognized that that was a thing that was going to be happening. And like, I think Willow had a hit when she was like a young child, right? The hair back and forth song. I think so. Yeah. Uh, and so this was like a pretty exciting way to see her grow up. And I think, you know, we saw this with other artists. Like, you remember Rebecca Black had that Friday song, yep. the like joke song. Rebecca Black is now like a very cool hyper pop artist. And it's like a decade after Friday, Rebecca Black is so cool. Well, there you go. Okay, our last moment we want to talk about from 2021 in music was the release starting on Thanksgiving night in the next three days of the eight-hour The Beatles Get Back documentary directed by Peter Jackson utilizing footage that was filmed for the Michael Lindsay Hogg Let It Be documentary in their recording, the recording sessions for The Beatles uh, that, that ended up becoming Let It Be and Abbey Road in 1969. So I, I, I've seen the first episode of this. How much have you seen of it? Pretty much the same. 
it's fascinating. What I love about it is the kind of the just how casual it is, I guess. Just hearing these random conversations between the Beatles over 50 years ago, like Paul McCartney telling jokes and making everybody laugh. Like, obviously, we've been around enough people of a certain level of fame to understand that famous people are still just people. But the Beatles in particular seem to exist in such a rarefied air that to see them just hanging out as friends in demand is a really fascinating thing to me. It's different than the level of fame for basically anybody else that you're talking about. For sure, They're yes. Flipping through the Beatles magazine, right? Nobody, nobody else was debating whether they were legitimately bigger than Jesus. The I just love that when there's the magazine specifically just about the Beatles, which probably is monthly or whatever, and they're just like flipping through it. It'd be so strange. Yeah, definitely. And then just the, seeing the process of how these songs that we've known basically all our lives came to be sometimes again and just uh oh you know i was watching the show last night and i heard the waltz and i started writing i mean mine it, it's a fascinating wild. yes yeah <laughs> well rico's talking about the the science fiction thing that he, he watched the night before again and to under to know the impact that these songs were going to have for decades to come is fascinating to see them from inception to I mean I don't we don't get finish obviously in this documentary but something close to it. Yeah, I think I think that's obviously like the most. I, I, there's a lot of parts that were pretty interesting about this. Like the okay, I'm gonna say the three most interesting parts were the Beatles just hanging out, right? Like just being the Beatles as the most significant band in the history of the world, but just like kind of being some dudes and chatting and not even like they had people helping them with stuff and bringing them drinks and things like that. But like they don't feel famous when you're watching them. It's there's not the feel of an entourage in the same way. No, it's it's like very and they were. They were just as famous as any person in modern times with an entourage. They didn't feel protected. You know what I mean? Right? Like if a, if a manager was there now and a publicist was there, like this footage probably would have never been seen by anybody. Like there's, it's almost like. Well, that is part, that is part of why it took five decades to happen. Uh, but the other piece on the music, which was like, I think people think that there's like a real like alchemy that goes into making songs right and sometimes it can just be like when you're at i remember thinking about this when the first fleet foxes record came out which i understand the beatles and fleet foxes these are not like <laughs> comparable things but i think they recorded no, that's that record what we heard on, we heard you compare the beatles and fleet foxes i remember they recorded process. that record on vashon i think and just being like like listening to it and hearing these harmonies and just being like my fucking god Right. I was indie this whole time. I could have been listening to pop up um, <laughs> 10 times more fans, but like listening to it and being like, I can't believe that I was here in Seattle, Washington, and this music was being recorded so close to me that it's so fucking good. And it feels like sometimes when you're listening to something like there is this like strange alchemy that goes into it. And ultimately it's kind of just, when you're really, really good at something, if you're taking a second to try to do that thing, 
you're going to end up with something that is really, really good. And that's how you could be Paul and just be fucking around on guitar and end up with get back or just playing piano. And all of a sudden it's let it be. I, there was a moment that I watched the finished that first episode last night and Ringo's like, yeah, I could listen to him play piano all day. He's so good at it. And I think he yeah. was being completely earnest in that. Yeah. I, I also thought it was remarkable, like hearing uh, Mal Evans, who worked for the Beatles, like contribute lyrics to the song. Like, oh yeah, th- that was part of the process too. It's not like McCartney sitting by himself in a room. Like it's actually a semi-collaborative thing. Oh, and thinking about like the, I mean, Chuck Klosterman mentioned this on a podcast with Bill Simmons being like, we put so much into rock music lyrics and ultimately they are just like a thing that you came up with to fit with a song. Like, I think we talked about this before on a previous podcast. The point of lyrics is, is to contribute to a pop song, right? Like it's the goal is not for you to learn something or whatever, right? Like people who are so concerned with that and it's great, but it's ultimately like lyrics, meaning in lyrics is so much more about the person who's interpreting it than the actual meaning or whatever, right? And the best possible lyrics are usually fairly vague. And so they are able to be interpreted in many different ways. But like, I, I think that the Beatles were thinking some interesting thoughts during this time period. You know, like George, like writing I, Me, Mine, right? Like George was thinking interesting thoughts at this time period. It's also kind of hilarious that he would write that and then also be very anti-taxes at the same time. <laughs> You're just like, yo, George, you see how maybe, anyway, <laughs> that concept did not come up to George. But like the, they're thinking interesting thoughts. And so that's going to get into the music. It's going to, to seep in there, but it's not so much necessarily like I'm going to sit down and write this song that is about this thing and it's going to be important. The other thing that I think about in terms of them composing these songs so relatively quickly is there's a presumably apocryphal story about Picasso being asked to draw uh, uh, draw something. And, you know, the person says, well, I'll pay you whatever you think it, it's worth. And he cites some enormous sum for this. And the woman who asked him says, you know, it only took you Uh, there's a variety of different versions to this, you know, a few seconds, a few minutes to do this. And he responds, no, it took me some large amount of time to my entire life to be able to do this. And there's probably that element too with the Beatles where just the reps as songwriters, especially in an era where you were pumping out songs as quickly and albums as quickly as they were, makes this a much easier process than it seems like it should be. Yes. Uh, But also like, uh, hearing their voices like Paul McCartney when he does the thing like the oh darling thing and you're just like god damn it dude like that is it's incredible how he's able to do that that he has that level to go to and Paul McCartney can just rip that off whenever and John's voice right like where he could just he it's so unique and you're like he talks and you're like damn that's the guy from the songs right (laughs) like that is his voice that's what he sounds like um so uh, it's i think it's on i got a feeling or whatever when he does the like everybody have a good time thing yeah john is talking and you're just like damn he's doing it right there because it it again you've been hearing it for so many years the idea of it just being improvised in the moment seems hard to believe 
I mean, it's also fascinating, like them, McCartney in particular, covering other people's songs, just messing around in the studio. And the Beatles could have been the most amazing cover band of all time, it seems. (laughs) But the the last piece was that I thought was interesting was just like how like haphazard they were about plans. Yes. You know, and again, it's like these are the fucking Beatles, (laughs) right? Like. But you think about how often that happens. I was thinking about the Kanye Drake show that happened, the like Amazon live show that happened last week. And it was like, I am assuming Kanye had this idea two weeks ago. Like this wasn't like nine months of preparation went into the show. This was like, a, we're going to do this. Everything gets figured out as fast as possible. And I feel like the Beatles sort of kind of like operate on that timeline. And they're like, what about this? What about this? What about this? Like all these different places that they're talking about going is like, it's everything that they do in the past in hindsight feels so thought out because it's in history. It was 50 years ago or whatever, but you see how it actually happened. It's sort of just like, what about this thing? People are like, oh, sure. Okay. <laughs> right. And that's really how it happens with a lot of things. Like the idea, when you peel back the curtain on stuff in, in music in particular, like it's not as complicated as it seems like it could be. Yeah, that checks out. So I, I thought it was pretty interesting to, to see how that worked for an artist that significant where they were basically just like, I don't know, maybe try this. Also, when they're like, can't even get a free guitar amp from Fender. I was just like, yeah, dude. <laughs> Feel you, brother. Relatable. <laughs> uh, I'm looking forward to watching the remaining five hours, though. It's oh definitely, God. definitely quite something. No, I mean, I, I, it really is like, it, we were talking about potentially watching with Jan. And the idea of watching that with Jan to me, it's like, maybe she would enjoy it. I don't know. But I feel like you have to really care about hanging out with the Beatles. And if it, that's not something, it's not a documentary. Yes. I mean, it, it is a documentary, but it's not a traditional documentary. There's no talking heads. It doesn't, doesn't fit the formula, so to speak. There's not a, like, there is a beginning, middle, and an end. Like, there's a story arc. But it's not like, this is the story of the Beatles. You have to bring a lot into it. And you have to get a lot out of them just being around them she did watch about a half hour of it one day when she was at my house so what she said but it shouldn't express any strong opinions i mean it's fascinating like our parents despite being the perfect age to be enormous beatles fans at this point not that big beatles fans all things considered although like i have been to a mccartney concert with mom maybe they're me too multiple i thought maybe i thought you had yeah Different maybe ones. They were, maybe they were listening to indie rock instead. <laughs> <laughs> they fucked up. 20 years later, they had to go back and be like, damn, let it be, huh? Damn. It's almost as good as Teenagers by My Chemical Romance. Dad was listening to American Pie, <laughs> which has aged quite nicely in the talk, right? I think our parents were plenty big Beatles fans. Not relatively speaking. Okay. It's time for our top it, 10s. It would be like, in hindsight, being like, for you being like, why are you not the biggest Taylor Swift fan on earth? Does that make sense? You're living in the same time period as Taylor Swift and Adele. So if you're not a hardcore, right? Well, they had some records. Well, let's let's wait till we get into my top 10. All right. 
There, there is no Adele. I'll, I'll give you that that spoiler. Uh, you go first. Let's let's just go through your ten, and then I did mine. I did a little bit. I listened back to some of my top ten from last year, and I was like, wow, I went really small on some of these. There's an artist who has like 300 monthly listeners <laughs> in uh, in the list last year, and I was like, oh shit, like what are they up to? Damn. All right. <laughs> I mean, sometimes those are very good. Uh, I, t- I listened to the song and I was like, the shit still hits. Okay. I had one honorable mention this year, which was the song way less sad by AJR, uh, which I did not realize was a big band. It somehow had not crossed my, uh, my radar until this particular song that they played a lot on the end. And although I don't know that I think it was one of my, the, like the best songs of 2021, I feel like the, this song best captured the experience of living in most of 20, 2021 with like, I ain't happy yet, but I'm way less sad is the uh, refrain, which seemed reasonable for 2021. Fair enough. All right. My number 10 was the uh, Childish Gambino version of Stay High, uh, remixing Brittany Howard's song from her 2019 solo debut, Jamie, and giving it kind of a different spin is one of a number of a number of different major artists took on versions of songs from this album uh, a couple of years after it came out, and this one I think was probably the the best of those certainly. Hell yeah! All right, number nine, I had "Sad Cowboy" by Goat Girl, which I cannot remember how I came across this song, but uh, I saw it online compared by the Guardian to Caribou's "Can't Do Without You." a pitchfork top 10 many years ago back in the day that I remember us talking about. And that's a pretty good comparison for this one. That's got a similar kind of vibe to that. All right. My number eight song was uh, ideal woman by Celeste. Now Celeste, you probably remember the song strange from being used in a climactic moment of Ted Lasso season one outside the karaoke in Liverpool, which is an incredible use of it. That's, that's probably probably my favorite Celeste song, but uh, it, it originally came out as a single in 2019, and I heard it last year, so it's not really eligible. And uh, I also eventually ruled her the other single, Stop This Flame, which came out last year, ineligible. Uh, but this was an album cut. Her, her album, debut album, Not Your Muse, didn't come out until January. All right, in seven. I had Deja Vu from Olivia Rodrigo. There we go. And I was I, just furious when I saw this number 10 on the Pitchfork Top 100. Because <laughs> they they beat me to the hipster tank of this being a better song than Driver's License. Wow. Well, Driver's License is like old news, I feel like. To me, Brutal is the track, but whatever. I mean, certainly there are multiple different candidates. I don't think Deja Vu is in terms of like plays that high all things considered off of sour but somehow pitchfork got me there i i think we're gonna have one song that is the same i cannot believe how wildly different our top tens are like even like last year they were because i was specifically trying to have small artists but even having like slightly large artists this year so radically different i mean that's the beauty of these lists right all right number six i had to go with Fifth Talking Taco Time co-host. There we go. This is the one that Aramis Johnson. There we go. Fast and All from the band Enum Claw. We talked about it on the Talking Taco Time podcast. The the video with uh, them drinking Rainier and uh, 
the line about riding down I-5, wondering how we got so high. Just incredible. Incredible stuff. All right, number five, a band that I did not think that was going to be appearing on my top 10 list. Some 15 years after Robbers and Cowards, it's What You Say from Cold War Kids. Wow. Who continue to make quality music. And this was definitely one of the songs that was most stuck in my head this year. Uh, at number four, I had Watching Cartoons by Laluz featuring Adrian Young. Uh, I wasn't really that familiar with Laluz, despite the fact that they uh, formed in Seattle, now based in LA, but heard this one listening to KXB at some point in the fall and really enjoyed it. Kind of a beach house vibe to me, but then also the sitar comes in and it's real prominent, which is very different and makes this stand out. And uh, one of the two songs on Laluz's 2021 self-titled album to credit Young, who also produced the album. I mean, that that also, you mentioned the sitar coming in and like Laluz is a uh sort of like 60s influence type band yep that's the george harrison right there like you can see the lineage through music as as somebody who helped introduce that to pop music all right number three you knew he had to appear on the list at some point here we go it's obligatory there was gonna be someone from the six and i i gotta tell you didn't didn't really care for drake's album this year so it's instead Take My Breath by The Weeknd, which, oh. which was the uh, first single from his forthcoming album we still haven't gotten yet, and it's another Weekend banger. All right, number two, as promised, all too well, the 10-minute version. There we go. From Red, the Taylor version. Uh, I, I I can't say I've ever been much of a Swifty, but... Uh, Heard, heard the performance of this song on SNL when she appeared on that earlier this year. And it, it really just grabbed me, especially the extended version. I, this was cut down for the original ver- album Red when it was released back in, what, 2012? And uh, then came through with the extended cut, the original version, as part of this the, the new version that she recorded and uh uh re- really a tough tough break for jake gyllenhaal that this became so popular <laughs> yes didn't come out well for him all right number one my top song of 2021 another old favorite who has not appeared on this list in a while uh back to oz from sufjan stevens and angelo de augustine uh a beginner's mind sufjan's album with D'Augustine harkens back to his earlier work, my favorite Sufjan since 2015's Carrie Ann Lowell. Uh, and I just love this song, despite the fact that I have never seen the movie Back to Oz, uh, for which this is named and actually is, is about more or less, but definitely the most beautiful song on the album, in my opinion, and my number one song of 2021. What era of Sufjan would you say that it is most akin to? You said it was a return to form. Well, I mean, because he had that, you know, he's had the various more experimental phases, Mm -hmm. uh, I would say, you know, the Age of Ads album in particular, and some of his more recent songs for Christmas, which, you know, have not been as Mm -hmm. popular in our family as the original songs for Christmas Mm -hmm. compilation. Age of Odds was pre-Carrie and Lowell, though. (laughs) That's fair. I'm saying, are you saying it's like? But I think Carrie Lowell. Seven fits. Swans. Era? I I have not heard this. I'm legitimately asking you: Is it like Seven Swans? Is it Michigan era, or is it like? I mean, I don't see blown it. out like orchestral pop music. 
I don't, I, I don't know that I see a dramatic difference between those. I guess I would say more like the, the Michigan era than if forced to choose. So kind of a, a return to more simplicity, but, but still outstanding work. All right. You're going to have to I, check that out, apparently. I've heard one song from your list. <laughs> the Olivia Rodrigo? No, I've heard more than one. Yeah, you've I, definitely heard Take My Breath. You couldn't have not heard that song. It's on ESPN constantly. Is it? I think so. It's definitely somewhere. The one song that I was, th- I forgot about Olivia Rodrigo. I was thinking of Enumclaw was the one Well, song. yeah, yeah, you definitely heard that too. So, again, my list, some parameters that I put on myself. Uh, so, this excludes any artists that I've worked with throughout the year, because that wouldn't be fair, right, to rank those songs, although they are all the songs. If you see my Spotify wrapped, every single one, <laughs> uh, there's no other artists in the mix here. But I mean, we, we should shout out Illuminati Hotties also cracking the Pitchfork Top 100 at number 40. I think it was 41. Okay. Uh, Who's counting? No. <laughs> uh, also the number 35 album of the year, if you're scoring at home. But, Excellent. You know, you know and uh, top album of the year from NPR, uh, New York Times, Spin Magazine, Rolling Stone, uh, Exclaim, you know. Just those, but so this excludes. You you were like, let me do one more plug. <laughs> this excludes any any artists that I work with, and definitely try, wanted to highlight more emerging artists, right? So not necessarily. While I do like Olivia Rodrigo, an artist of that that ilk, didn't want to necessarily highlight any of those. I think my number one band is definitely the biggest band. Um, so I accidentally did eleven. Uh, <laughs> without realizing it until I was typing them out. So this is technically a top 11. Um, at number 11 is the song It's You by Strange Ranger. And definitely a song that surprised me. This is a band that I believe they moved from Portland to New York at some sometime sort of recently during the pandemic, completely have transformed what their music sounds like. And kind of, despite the fact that they moved from Portland, like carrying on a little bit of the like, dark pop era sort of like italians do it better era of like chromatics glass candy on this track uh i was blown away when i heard the song first so that's number 11 okay uh at number 10 is the song uh tommy by the artist claude and so claude released i believe it was the first release on phoebe bridger's record label uh imprint satisfactory and so this wasn't on that debut record from claude this was a single that came a little bit more recently called tommy slowed it down a little bit more lyrically driven from claude and it it was a song for some reason it reminded me of like prince johnny by saint vincent like the best moments of saint vincent where i was like stripping away some of the like pop elements and bringing it back to just their voice this this track was shocked how much i liked it uh, at number nine, I have the song Stains by Dwayne. Um, Dwayne, you know, we talked about the rise of pop punk. We talked about the rise of pop punk this last year. And Dwayne is one of those artists who perfectly balancing like pop punk edge and then also hip hop at the same time. Uh, and somebody who's been a little bit more lumped in with pop punk, but is definitely a rapper. And to have that like a, a 
person who grew up listening to Nirvana or whatever, and equally grew up listening to hip hop. I think he's originally from Houston and now lives in LA. Like Dwayne, it just sounds so fresh what he's doing. And this song comes in very immediately, right away, where you're just like, hell yeah, let's fucking go, Dwayne. Uh, at number I lost where I'm at, number eight? Yes. At number eight, the song To Some I'm Genius by Snow Ellett. Uh, again, one that kind of owes a lot to pop punk. Uh, you know, Blink-182 is a pretty obvious influence. Solo artist from Chicago, uh, or just outside of Chicago. Again, an EP that came completely out of nowhere. Oh, I realized why I had I had stains on here twice. That's why I had 11 songs. Okay, so I only had 10. Um, completely came out of nowhere for me. An EP just dropped. Uh, and to some I'm genius was just like instantly played it over and over and over again. The entire EP is amazing. Uh, everything that Snow Owl has done since then, super into. Uh, at number six, this is where I have Fast and All by Enum Claw. And you know, it's kind of incredible, like hearing it for the first time and being like, what is this? Right. Before Enumclaw, I, I don't want to say blew up necessarily, but like, I remember hearing them before there was, before they were written up in Pitchfork or whatever, and just being like, there's this band from Tacoma called Enumclaw <laughs> and the tracks are pretty tight. It's like, what is this? Like before we ever got to know them or anything, it was just kind of like, I can't pinpoint this. And then you hear them like calling themselves the best band since Oasis. And it's kind of incredible. You're, you're definitely very taken with the best band since Oasis. This is not a me thing. This is I, like their tagline. I know. I know that it's their tagline. I'm just saying that you really love that being their tagline. I'm supportive. Of course <laughs> they are. And they should say it. Uh, and that's why the song is the number six song of the year. But like, it doesn't necessarily owe, I think there are other songs in, in the in the can that are going to sound a lot more like Oasis, but it's kind of funny because it's not like, this is not an Oasis ripoff. And I think that's why it's, that's why it's so cool. Cause it's like, it takes that influence or whatever. And the popularity and the attitude of Oasis who ultimately everybody knows are cool, but it doesn't sound like them. It doesn't ape them. I, I still find it vaguely disrespectful to blur. <laughs> I guess so. Blur like contemporaries of Oasis. That's the point. That they should say that they're the best band since Blur. It's only disrespectful to Blur yes. because they happen to be contemporaries of Oasis. Yes. That's why. I listened to a lot of Blur this summer. It's just the both of us on our trip to Oregon. Oh, I mean, this is this is no disrespect to Blur. Also, Oasis, though. Definitely, maybe. Come on. Still hits. I'm not disputing Oasis. Uh, at number five, the song Lux by Pom Pom Squad, as produced by Sarah Tudson. Um, definitely some songs that got more attention from this record. Uh, Pom Pom Squad, I'm not sure if I've talked about her before, uh, but Mia Barron, the daughter of MC Search of Pop Goes the Weasel fame from Third Base, uh, and has like a shredding i don't want to call them pop punk band almost grunge band a lot of influence uh and definitely had a phenomenal year this is like lux is one of the like just like a short snippet of a song fast and energetic and it's perfect at number four uh the song handsome man by the band wednesday this one like I, I couldn't even tell you exactly. It's like My Bloody Valentine shoegaze influenced. 
uh, but ultimately pop music. They're from, I want to say Carborough, North Carolina. Um, Wednesday, this was actually their second record that they put out this year uh, on a small label from Chicago. But like, I heard this song, Handsome Man, it was the first single from it. And I was like, fuck, this is it. I was like, this is the fucking track right here. Uh, I, I honestly, when I heard it, was like, this is going to be the number one song of the year. And maybe it's something where I heard it a little bit too much. So it moved down to number four, but was listening to it again today. And I was like, damn, like a song does not start a guitar driven song, especially in this vein. It doesn't, they don't start better than this. Uh, track number three on my list, the song Hope by the band Howdy. Uh, a song that I was pretty surprised to be on here. I was sort of like casually listening through to the Howdy record a couple of months ago. And it's like, this is fine, this is fine. It's okay. And then this song came on and I was just like, oh, fuck. Uh, again, like sort of a drifting. I think this year my songs are sort of like drifting by songs, like little snippets or they're pop punk songs. <laughs> and this track, like unquantifiable, exactly even what genre you want to consider it. Like no chorus, just one verse that comes in like two minutes into the song and then it's gone. Literally could easily be the number one song of the year. Perfect track. But it's not. At number two, uh, the song Weird Carolina by Camp Trash. I would say, aside from the number one band in the artist that I work with, this is the the EP that I have listened to the absolute most, the Camp Trash EP. Uh, I have a Camp Trash as a real band and I'm in it t-shirt on the way. I got the notification about it from Bandcamp. Uh, this song, every single song on the Camp Trash EP is a perfect song. But Weird Carolina is just like, it's the last song on the EP. Every single second of it, like, owes to pop punk to a certain extent, but like, definitely in the like emo and DIY punk territories. Like, I wouldn't say it owes that much to Blink 182 or something like that. Uh, maybe a little bit more to emo and catchy as hell. Like, how these songs, they have no business being as catchy as they are. Like listening to this Camp Trash EP for the first time, it's just like one after another, I was like, oh, Bobby is that song that I like or whatever. And I was just like going through and being like, that's the song that I like, right? This is the song that I like. And I was like, oh yeah, I like all of them, but Weird Carolina is the one that definitely stood out the most. Uh, this is one that you're going to like when you listen to it. Sounds like it. At number one, I could have chosen literally any song from this band. Uh, it could have been Blackout, could have been TLC. But the number one song, Holiday by Turnstile. And definitely the biggest band on this list. Like, they're like feel-good story for music fans for this year. Like, I've never seen a group of people rally around a band like people have rallied around Turnstile this year. They played on Seth Meyers earlier this week. And it was just like the most celebratory moment. It's like when you talk about like, Taylor Swift playing on SNL. This was the hardcore version of Taylor Swift playing on SNL. It's Seth Meyers tweeting about how you get two songs for one if you have short songs. And it's just like the turnstile moment that has happened. I, I don't want to say it came out of nowhere, but it just absolutely exploded this year. And they're easily the coolest band on the face of the earth, but excluding nobody. Uh, I was When I was in Baltimore over the summer in August, it was like, 
I think their record was coming out that day or the week after. And it was like the fucking Beatles were in town. They're from Baltimore. They were doing a free show in the park. People were like, everybody was talking about it. And everybody was talking about like more exaggerated perspectives about the free show. It's like they had a permit for 300 people, but there's going to be 10,000 people there or whatever. And people being like, the cops are going to shut it down. They did a merch drop earlier that day that everything sold out. I was like, damn, do I need to go get a fucking turnstile skateboard right now? Like we got into a car and immediately turnstile was playing right when you get in the car and then you get back in later and turnstile is playing again because that's all you listen to is turnstile. This record, every single second of the record is perfect. It is such a celebratory moment. This was like the year of pop punk or whatever, but it was a hardcore band with classic rock influence, with hip hop influence, with fucking Attitude, who is the most important band of the year in Turnstile. And to have this moment at the end of the year playing Seth Meyers and reaching a little bit larger of a national stage, like this is, uh, it's, so incredible to see how this built up and i was thinking about it and i was just like turnstile is the dk metcalf of bands i was like <laughs> they're tough as hell right like you love dk metcalf because he's badass but also he's pretty while he does it you know what i mean it's like rarely do you see anything that balances so fucking tough right and like like the muscles of DK Metcalf, but you're like, it's smooth somehow. It's unlike anything we've ever seen on the face of the earth. And he has attitude. His hair is dyed blue. He's got the, the earring, everything about that. You're just like, this is what turnstile is. Like this music is DK Metcalf embodied, right? Like the meathead hardcore, that's fucking George Kittle right here. DK Metcalf, he is turnstile and it is perfect this is their year 2021 is the year of turnstile they could have had the entire record glow on as the entire number one song uh i i'm so excited to see them live this is your you know bill simmons can analogize anything to basketball this is your moment of that making anything into an analogy for a seahawks player who was this year's tyler lockett who is this year's Tyler Lockett? I think that's Wednesday. No, I don't know. <laughs> my my other question here is, and this is an important Michael one. Michael Dixon, Snow Elliott. <laughs> this is an important one. How into Natty Bow is Turnstile? I I feel like they need to be very you, into Turnstile. Yeah, I guarantee you there's a Natty Bow tattoo on at least <laughs> one member of Turnstile. There's no fucking way that there isn't. I believe you mean at least one of those fuckers. At least one of those fuckers. I want to see them in Baltimore. Like it, it would be Merriweather post pavilion, like seeing turnstile. I'll fucking go see them at uh and bank park or whatever. Like it would be incredible. More important than Paul McCartney. <laughs> sure. I went to the McCartney show one time, but let me tell you kids about grandkids about the time I saw turnstile. I'm telling you right now, listen to the fucking record. Well, I definitely will check that out along with everything else in your top 10. You should, you should give a listen to uh, the weekend song, you know? <laughs> oh, I'm going to listen good. to your top 10. I, I also want to say uh, before we leave, it was an incredible year for me just working on music. And, you know, I've had so many times this year where I like 
think about, you know, before these songs were released, and there are other songs that haven't been released yet, just being like, to be able to work with artists where every single song I get, I'm like, damn, that track rules. And it's just like, it's such a privilege to be able to be in that position and to have that perspective and then have those songs come out and people agree with you, right? Like this Illuminati Hotties record, we're like, we think it's really fucking good, but you never know if people are going to agree with you until it happens, right? And then to see that go from, you know, sitting on these tracks for two years to being one of the top top five albums from NPR or whatever, or the New York Times, where it's like the New York Times top albums, Adele, Tyler, the Creator, Illuminati Hotties. And you're just like, yeah, okay, cool. So it, it's awesome to, to be able to have that experience of just truly loving every single song that you hear and having other songs that maybe they didn't blow up as much or whatever, but knowing that those are phenomenal tracks. Uh, so I excluded them from the top 10 intentionally, but Illuminati Hotties, Pink Shift, Michael Sayer, Lunar Vacation, Eliza McClam, Matthias Moore, a producer, Al Many of Great Grandpa and Hannah Cole. Uh, all of them just phenomenal artists and people most importantly tell every single one of them it's like the most important part is that the music is phenomenal but artists as people and getting to know them as human beings is even more important so that human aspect and i think that's why why fans connect with those bands it's like you know the turnstile thing if they weren't cool people that you wanted to be around it wouldn't work and i think that's a huge part of it where it's like being a person who's who's not necessarily accessible, but who can feel like a normal human being, like you talked about with the Beatles, or you could just hang out with them. I think that's a huge piece uh, to being a phenomenal artist. So uh, both as artists and as people, it's been incredible to be able to work with all of them. Well, hopefully five decades from now, there won't be a documentary about the breakup of any of those groups. It'll be about Turnstile. <laughs> The making of Glow On with Mike Elizondo as Glenn Johns. On that note. Uh, thanks so much for listening to music in 2021. And uh, we will see you later this week with our regularly scheduled podcast. Possibly, after, a, possibly a semi-emergency pod on after, Tuesday. We'll see, if, see, we'll see if this football game gets played first. Play their first ever Tuesday game. <laughs> thanks for listening. Thanks.